Hey, are you looking for a new hardware wallet? Well, I wasn't until I found Bitbox. It turns out there are hardware wallets that don't compromise security for ease of use. I value the fact that Bitbox has open source security code, its micro SD card is super convenient for seed phrase backup, and their customer service is outstanding. I know you're stacking during the spare market, so make sure you're storing your Bitcoin securely on their Bitbox 2 Bitcoin-only edition wallet. Check them out at shiftcrypto.ch backslash progressive. You have to understand that proof of work is required, required to get the long-term lasting socioeconomic improvements from this new money. Proof of stake is just the same thing as fiat. It's easy money. It's in control of the hands of a few, right? Yes, it's out of the control of the government, although the government could pretty easily take control of a proof of stake system if they wanted to. Um, but let's say like now Ethereum is ostensibly not an indirect control of the government. There's, you know, some big stakers on the network now that control, largely control the entire network. And this is what proof of stake is. Proof of stake is just you have, how much money do you have? You have the, the richer people get to uh, control the consensus on the network. So the richer you are, the more votes you have. It's exactly the same system. So you end up centralizing with a small number of entities, whether they be state or private, and they will eventually easily collude and start censoring transactions and, you know, taking people out of the system and printing more money. And just like we have with the Federal Reserve now in the central banking system. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Brady Swenson, co-founder of Swan Bitcoin and the current head of marketing and education. We sat down to chat about growing up in a democratic family and how political views and values may or may not change after learning about Bitcoin. It was an insightful and honest conversation, one that you and friends and family will likely be able to relate to. So thanks for tuning in. Enjoy this episode with Brady Swenson. Brady Swanson, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm delighted to have you. I'm delighted to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. So this encounter, this podcast has been a little off the cuff. Uh, we were sharing a few DMs back and forth, and you had mentioned your political progressive uh, family, that that's uh, mm-hmm. kind of yeah. the nature of where you, where you came from. And so one thing led to another, and here we are having a conversation uh, without a lot of uh, pretext or content to build off from. Exactly. (laughs) So I'm excited to see where things go here. But I thought we could start off with that very thing. Uh, You, again, mentioned that you come from a politically progressive family. Curious to know, did your views change from your families prior to Bitcoin? uh, Or was Bitcoin more the driving force for how you see the world now? Yeah. Well, let me just give a quick background about my family um, and, and kind of work up to that, if that's cool with you. Like, Absolutely, please. So I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, capital of Kansas, right in the middle of of the country, 6 million people here, lots of farmland. There's a few like kind of blue spots like Kansas City, Kansas, you know, more urban, Topeka and Lawrence, where the University of Kansas is, those two towns where I grew up, and then Wichita. The rest of it is, you know, red counties uh, in Kansas. Interestingly, the way it balances out with the population, Kansas is like on the state level, a purple state. On the federal level, we always send 
Republicans to the Senate and to the House. Uh, but we often have Democratic governors, and we have much more of a balance in the state, House, and Senate, which is interesting. My family was very active in the Kansas Democratic Party. So my dad uh, was PR uh, press secretary to a governor of Kansas, John Carlin, for eight years. So that was when I was growing up. So I was like going to the Capitol building with my dad on Saturday mornings and like, you know, took these white tapes that he would always record uh, like radios and interview radio shows, and interviews on and stuff and recording Casey Kasem. And like, that was my music, you know, when I did, for the rest of the week. And I had all these cassette tapes of the Casey Kasem show. And so I was around politics all the time, campaigns, you know, he was a news reporter. So it was either media or it was or politics. And um, it was, it was fascinating to me, the, the kind of push and pull about how policy was made. And uh, there were some really, I, I was, I was left with the impression that politics was actually a productive pursuit. Like, policy was being made. These conversations were civil, you know, from what, from my perspective, from what I saw, things have definitely changed since then. This was a long time ago. This is like 30 plus years ago. Um, and things are much more divisive now. Um, so anyway, I grew up as a Democrat. Uh, I volunteered for campaigns, you know, lots of donations over the years, et cetera, and politically active for certain causes, you know? Um, and so it's important to me. I, I do think that it matters to voice your opinion into this political process and how we govern ourselves. I, I'm not completely apathetic about it, even still, although I am a lot more than I used to be. So enter Bitcoin around 2017. And um, I, at first, was just interested in the tech and, the, you know, it was something to invest in and play with and learn about. And by after that year, by early 2018, I had started my first podcast called Citizen Bitcoin, which is one of the few kind of Bitcoin only or Bitcoin focused podcasts in the space at that point. And so it got some traction just for by virtue of the fact that it was, you know, one of a few instead of one of hundreds now. And I started learning a lot more talking to Bitcoiners about how the nature of money affects the nature of society and about how uh, the political process has co-opted the money. And so that does change your political views, the economic political political views, right? So you have the kind of the social political views and these economic political views, and they they definitely, there's gray line in between them both, obviously. Um, but I didn't know what money was. Bitcoin taught me what money is. I thought money should be controlled by people who knew how to manage the money and, and, and all of that. I was took Keynesian economics classes in college. And then when I found out about how the control of money creates tyranny uh, in otherwise, you know, relatively free governments, right? So like, even if we're talking about co-opting of the money back in like the Roman Empire, right? Cato, Emperor Cato, who also like, was you know famous for being emperor during the the burning of Rome, started debasing the money at that point. That's basically when the denarius started going away. But that was just you know one decision by an emperor, basically, right? I didn't understand that the Fed is basically like an emperor. They're like the emperor of money, you know, <laughs> and uh, they, they control the global reserve currency. And so there really isn't any political sort of like I guess uh, influence. There isn't much political influence into the Fed. Republicans, Democrats, both kind of push the same Keynesian monetary policy now. What is it that Nixon said? Didn't he, or, or somebody before Nixon in the 60s said, some, said we're all Keynesians now. I yeah, can't remember I, that I was. I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember the quote itself. 
that's the quote. I think it's often attributed to Nixon, but uh, it was it was an economist, I believe. Um, and then he repeated it. But yeah, right. So it's all the same. And it <laughs> it's it's the most powerful thing that the government has control of. And Milton Friedman later rephrased by Nixon. There you go. Yeah, Friedman. Exactly. So it was right there. It's, it's not, there's no political influence over the Fed. It's just, this is the way things are now. We're all Keynesians now, and this is how we manage the money. So I really bought into the idea of separation of money and state. And to me, it was akin to the separation of church and state, where you're decoupling this, like, two very powerful forces that together created, you know, just tyranny, basically. Same thing with control of the money versus control of the legal system, essentially, right, is what is what we're talking about. Um, and so I became a strong advocate for the separation of money and state because I think it's important for freedom and to preserve our republic and our democracy uh, and to, by basically decreasing power of the state. Now, this is not like democratic dogma, right? <laughs> democratic political dogma. You, we, we like trust the state and we want to empower the state. And we, you know, um, so it's in that sense, I've departed from democratic politics for the most part. So I'm more libertarian on this kind of economic side of things. And even on the government, the size of government and like scope of government, I'm more on the, I, I think we should have smaller government because I think we should chop off like, it, one of its most powerful tools. Um, but socially speaking, I think that all of those, the consequences or the outcomes of removing or separating money from state will actually improve all of the other goals that I have in terms of social goals, progressive social goals. And that's why, and especially around the world, like it will happen in the United States, but especially around the world where the global international Cantillon effect is so pronounced. Like we feel it in the US here, with rich people getting access to cheaper money, being able to accumulate capital assets and preserve and build wealth over time. And the middle class and the lower classes just living paycheck to paycheck, can't accumulate wealth. Um, and that's because of this Candelon effect that we have uh, within this country. But it's even more devastating if you think about it on a global scale. The United States is, is the, are the rich people, you know, uh, and we have this incredible effect uh over the entire world and it's making monies fail people you know not being able to eat not being able to go to school losing their jobs etc it's very very real like consequences of the monetary policy of the fed all over the world and so that's to me like the moral imperative and i find it consistent with my sort of social socially progressive political beliefs i've had for a long forever you know so I'm curious to know what conversations have been like uh, between you and, and family members or friends, uh, I'm assuming you still associate with, who are still uh, democratic yeah. and probably still involved in politics. Do they tend to understand what you're getting at? Do they show curiosity in, in that uh, the monetary side of things? Because it, it's not a part of the conversation right. uh, that we have as Democrats. Uh, the money side is, is always kind of jumps straight to uh, the social issues uh, themselves and leaves out, well, perhaps this more foundational uh, driver of, of those ills. So curious to know how, how this has played out uh, in conversations with friends and family. Well, it's, it's definitely been interesting. And I am at the stage now where I just don't really talk about it as much because it's been five years. And I've had those conversations with people coming, either me bringing it up 
like overexcitedly at every like hangout with my friends or family, never, uh, never. which is like the first year, right? <laughs> right, right? You just can't not tell people about this. You've made right. this discovery. Uh, but those conversations were, they were mostly, the initial ones were mostly interested, you know, asking me questions about it. And it, they maybe give me a few minutes, you know, of their attention about it. And then we just kind of move on and talk about something else. Right. Um, so I haven't had many conversations lately, but I have had a few that have been much deeper and people are starting to come back to me now, especially with like what's happening with inflation and uh, looming. Well, we're in the midst of recession, a looming, you know, much larger recession. And people are one, you know, kind of wondering, like, first of all, like, are you okay? <laughs> Is your company okay? Uh, you know, are you guys going to survive Bitcoin dead? But then once I answer that question, they're like, well, why are you still doing it? Like, what's going on? I'm like, this is exactly why. This is why we're doing it, what you're seeing happen right now. And when I can when I can get 10 minutes, like I just spieled for 10 minutes, and I can explain, like, there's money's broken, and we have better money now that will help us fix a lot of problems that have been caused by the bad money. And, you know, there, a lot of them are things you care about, like, Justice, social justice, economic justice, you know, um, and and freedom, financial freedom, which is a huge deal. Uh, so people are starting to get that. I do have, I mean, I have to highlight, and I don't know if he'll listen to this or not, but my brother, he uh, he's also very active politically. He studied political science. He ran for like um, student uh, body president in college and, and has worked in campaigns and stuff as well. Uh, and he's very diehard Democrat. And just really hates Bitcoin. He thinks Bitcoin is just basically he thinks it's evil. You know, it's just like it's a terrible thing. It's going to boil the oceans. Uh, it's going to take away. It's going to like chop the knees out of our governments and like take away a crucial power for them. And um, and it'll you know neuter the United States. And it's just a massive mistake. And he's very uh, very deeply convicted about it, just as I am deeply convicted convicted about the other side. Uh, and so that's really interesting to me. And he, uh, you know, he and I were still friendly and like, you know, whatever at family events, it doesn't feel awkward to me, but it's the first thing in my life that I've really fundamentally disagreed so vehemently with, uh, um, with my brother about. And so, so that's an interesting thing. And that, that's going to happen. I, he's, I think he'll probably, <laughs> he'll probably, no matter what, uh, think that Bitcoin has been bad, a bad outcome 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll find a way. There'll still be Bitcoin haters for sure. And I feel like he's going to be on the Bitcoin hater train for a very long time. Um, if not because he actually believes it, maybe because he just doesn't want to lose. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's Maybe it's there's a little brother uh, competitiveness going on for, or something. Yeah, that's hard, especially when yeah. it's a family member. Um, so I sympathize. Yeah. I was having this conversation with Scott Wolf uh, in a previous episode, and I wondered to what degree ind individuals, speaking from the, the left, who have committed their lives, their careers to fighting for uh, a democratic cause or progressive cause, probably with some increasing frustration over the years, like you said, uh, things or function would appear to function a lot different now than they did decades ago in your, your father's era. Mm -hmm. And, and so that that futility, that Sisyphean task of trying to make change seems so much harder now. But then Bitcoin comes along and says, hey, I'm going to fix these things that you believe in, that you are fighting for. 
And I can't help but think that that might actually push people away who have been fighting their whole lives to try to accomplish those very things. Bitcoin comes along Mm -hmm. and, as Mm -hmm. Scott says, tries to eat your lunch with regard to uh, taking care of those things. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a certain degree of, of empathy with that understanding that that individual has been fighting for, has been committed to change, mm-hmm. has been frustrated most likely with trying to affect change. Bitcoin comes along and says, hey, I'm going to do this. I suspect that there might be some pushing away and mm-hmm. a, 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 a turning away of something that you're now offended by. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any component of that to your your brother's sentiment? Yeah, I do. I think I think you're on point there. The The interesting thing is, that I want to try to help people understand on the progressive side is that we've been fighting against a lot of symptoms without understanding that they are symptoms of what I now believe and understand to be bad money. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive or not counterintuitive, but unintuitive um, to think that money can have such, you know, fundamental and profound effects on society and on individuals, the nature of money, until you, you know, really get down in that rabbit hole and start thinking about it and the difference between, you know, a centrally controlled, uh, easy money versus uh, decentralized fixed supply money. Uh, and it's, it's reliability, it's trustworthiness. Um, and I think it's also this instilling this idea of, well, personal sovereignty, I think is an important factor in there as well. But also um, just this idea that you can, you know, transact with anybody in the world at any time is extremely freeing. Um, and then the idea that you can actually build wealth with money instead of with assets, financial assets, like homes or stocks. Right. And assets that historically many people that as progressives we care about have been locked out of. Exactly. Exactly. So that's that's the main problem, right? Is that you've taken away the store of value. That's not the main problem, but I, one of the biggest ones is you've taken away the store of value property of money, which means that people who don't have access to stocks and real estate and other wealth generating preserving assets cannot <laughs> generate or preserve wealth. And so like right now we're at 8% inflation. If I was trying to save up for a, a new car, a down payment for a new car next year, you know, I would, I'm trying to save $2,000. I got to save 2,500 now all of a sudden, just because it's, you know, being eaten away over the next 12 months at that rate. And that makes a huge difference for, for people. 500 bucks is, I think it's some in 60% of America, Americans can't afford a surprise $500 or $1,000 expense. So it's just, it, it doesn't like, it's so absurdly um, unfair and we don't, it's, it's hidden. It's sort of hidden. And we also feel like we don't have control over it. Like there's no alternative. Like, what are we going to do? We're obviously not going to go back on a gold standard. It's never going to happen again. Gold's been co-opted completely. Uh, so yeah, there's been, if, if you did understand like a gold bug or an Austrian economics uh, adherent understood <laughs> what was happening, but there was just no solution. Uh, and so now we have this thing that's resolving a lot, a, a lot of the symptoms that we're looking at with socioeconomic injustice in the world uh, that we can really fight for and, and I think do a lot of good, more good than trying to, you know, address the symptoms with NGOs or um, 
volunteer work or whatever it is, which is still important and good, but I am now extremely motivated to strike at the root. And I think Bitcoin is, is uh, the tool to do that. Exactly. Because you look at these social programs and what are they attempting to do? They're attempting to fix an economic problem. Yep. Why is there an economic problem in the first place? Okay. Yep. Well, what if we can get a sort of value into, the pe into the, these people's hands that is not prevented by, again, any type of bias, discrimination, uh, lack of ID, et cetera, et cetera? Does that not solve the very reason why we needed a government intervention in the first place? I would argue that it would. And in turn, again, I think the conversation gets a little bit binary, a little bit hyperbolic at times that it's, you know, maybe to your brother's point or concern that mm -hmm. it's going to get rid of governments and it's going to destroy everything. Well, well, maybe no, but what if it offloads some of these programs? What if it, it removes them yep. because they're not needed anymore, making government arguably more efficient or yeah. to be able to tackle more uh, – Issues that are, are are better served by centralized forces, are, one could argue, sure. uh, military, et cetera. Yep. To me, that's often how I, I frame it, just because, again, as you've said, a lot of their, their symptoms yep. of an underlying problem and throwing more money at it clearly has not been efficacious, let alone as effective as we would want to yeah. over the decades. And it's actually, it's actually just, you know, continues the cycle right. because we're printing money in, in a lot of cases to fund these you know, these uh, government programs that are trying to address socioeconomic injustice. And, and I, I don't think, obviously, there's, all, there's many other root causes of, of these symptoms that we're seeing. And we will need government programs, safety nets to catch those people who are inevitably going to be, you know, victims of, of socioeconomic injustice and from what, some other form, right? Some, some other cause besides the, the bad money. But like you said, I think you offload a ton of bandwidth, basically a ton of that. You open up a ton of bandwidth for the government, basically, because you're going to resolve a large portion of that. Um, and yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think it helps the government become more effective, more manageable, more sustainable. It creates another check and balance against, let's say, the military industrial complex, which is a massive beneficiary of easy money and or the financial uh, industry, which has metastasized to like 30% of this economy since we went to a fiat only system in 1971, you know, like our main export is the dollar, like that it's our money. Like we don't, it's, we're not, we've, we're offshored a ton, a ton of production. So we're now, you know, dependent on countries that are more in state unstable than, than the United States perhaps, or don't have the same values as the United States. So all of these are the result. All of this is the result of fiat money, a fiat money system, and we would, I think, have a much stronger government and country without it. It would it, it would force us to be a better country. I think what you just said is is pretty damn significant, and I can't recall actually seeing um, stated as bluntly as as you just did. But it's very similar to the counterintuitive process of. Bitcoin actually being good for the environment. Yeah. But Bitcoin can be good for the government. And I think that's a pretty profound way to put it because I think in our opinions, that certainly could be true by the very reasons that we just mentioned. It's offloading um, all these programs. If people had more economic stability, what government programs would not need to be present? If those programs are not needed, what resources could those be you then applied to uh, for a better functioning um, 
government, I think is yeah. the question. That's pretty, that's, that's fascinating and pretty significant. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think if you think about it this way, you know, our government's been living, living off of fiat money for 50 years and it has made us weak. It's easy. It's easy money, right? So it's easy to print more of it as an answer to a problem uh, or print more of it for, as an answer to a invented problem, <laughs> you know, because then you're, you know, you just go and like, I'm, I'm going to be able to, to raise money for this particular boondoggle. And it's going to be a lot easier because I don't have to raise taxes for it. Right. And that's politically difficult. Um, we can, you know, the Fed will take care of it. The Fed, uh, the biggest example of this is the Fed is very like obviously and out in plain sight become a backstop for the financial industry, which like I said, is metastasized to become something far beyond useful, right? Like they're like <laughs> financial systems and financial products Etc. are useful to to some extent to create liquidity and and stuff like that in a in an economy. We need to have financial services, but these banks started you know becoming investment banks and and you know they've sort of had rules to try to separate retail banks from investment banks and they've kind of been broken with Glass Steagall was repealed and then kind of half put back together after two thousand eight etc. But they figured out ways around this and they're just doing all kinds of crazy gambling with everybody's money. And rehypothecating until there's, you know, 30, 40x leveraged or whatever it is. Um, they're not right now, but they got up to some crazy high like that in 2008. And it's just they're completely bailed out. They, like I don't know of anybody who got jail time. You know, there was one company that almost like Bear Stearns almost went out of business, but the Fed hooked up a deal and got them, you know, bought on the cheap by Goldman Sachs. You know, so. Goldman Sachs came out of that beautifully. They bought their competitor for like pennies on the dollar and, you know, made tons of money, like short selling and uh, offloading toxic assets to all of their competitors in like the weeks leading up to the financial crisis. This is what I'm talking about. Like they're partners now and it doesn't, it's no good for our government. It's no good for the country to be reliant on tax money from that kind of an industry or reliant on, you know, all of your important infrastructure, energy demands, uh, you know, food, uh, daily goods, necessities that we, that we use are being like produced offshore. If that, yeah, if the if the events of 07, 08, 09 yeah. upset you, right? And yes, this I don't know a- any progressive or Democrat that it did not. Yes. Bitcoin was a direct response to those events. This is like an Occupy Wall Street thing. Yes. Like Bitcoin was just being born right then, so no one really knew about it. But if we had Occupy Wall Street right now, it'd be everybody there would be would be Bitcoiners. You right. know, like if they weren't, but when they came to the protest, they would be before they left because it's the answer to this shit. Yeah. So yeah, and that's the very thing uh, that I, I I try to get people to just to pause on. Like this is what it was born out of, and if you aligned with your concern about what happened during that time. You should take a second look at what Bitcoin is trying to do. Yeah. But let's jump into that. Let's jump into the, the um, current event here because I think it's one of the things that gets brought up with conversations with center-left individuals is that um, they read the headlines and in turn uh, often side with uh, proof-of-stake systems that um, are believed to be better, quote-unquote, whether that's through the environment or from some social good. When you're talking with, with individuals, whether 
on the right or the left. How do you compare and contrast Bitcoin with with proof of stake systems as it relates to not just the economic uh, elements, but also the the social justice side of things? So, first of all, like this is an and and this will be a large part of the conversation because it is the most important debate in terms of, or let's say question that a progressive will have about Bitcoin. And I had, this was the, the last piece for me too. When I was really getting into Bitcoin, I was very concerned about the energy usage of proof of work. And I have discovered, well, first of all, I'll just start with this. Everything that we've talked about so far, like if you are starting to believe that the nature of money has a massive effect on socioeconomic justice in this world, then you have to understand that proof of work is required, required to get the long-term lasting socioeconomic improvements from this new money. Proof of stake is just the same thing as fiat. It's easy money. It's in control of the hands of a few, right? Yes, it's out of the control of the government, although the government could pretty easily take control of a proof-of-stake system if they wanted to. Um, but let's say like now Ethereum is ostensibly not in, in direct control of the government. There's you know some big stakers on the network now that control, largely control the entire network. And this is what proof-of-stake is. Proof-of-stake is just, you have how much money do you have? You have the, the richer people get to uh, control the consensus on the network. So the richer you are, the more votes you have. It's exactly the same system. So you end up centralizing with a small number of entities, whether they be state or private, and they will eventually easily collude and start censoring transactions and you know taking people out of the system and printing more money. And just like we have with the Federal Reserve now and the central banking system, same thing, doesn't, doesn't change anything. So you can have proof of stake but you don't get any of the benefits of a decent, truly decentralized money. You don't have any of the empowering effects, the individual empowering effects of actually being able to hold your money, send it to anybody you want, not having it rehypothecated, not having it inflated away. You can, you can hold those keys and you know that you'll have that exact amount of Bitcoin and you know it'll be the exact same percentage of the network, of the total Bitcoin on the network in 50 years. Um, Proof of stake systems also don't follow, um, they, they don't prioritize decentralization, obviously. They're, so Bitcoin does because Bitcoin knows that, uh, and Bitcoiners know that that's the only way to preserve like the individual empowerment that a decentralized money can get you. So proof of work is simply running a bunch of hashes. It's a cryptographic math problem, right? And these computers will run as many of these, you know, millions and millions of these hashes per second, trying to find an answer to this cryptographic problem. And it's like a needle in like a cosmic haystack. And that's, you know, the, the, the more miners that come on the network, the harder it is to find that needle or the bigger the stack gets. You know, you can think about it either way. And because of that adjustment, the amount of Bitcoin that's released to the network on schedule is maintained. That schedule is maintained. So roughly every 10 minutes, there's new block of transactions that are confirmed by the nodes on the network. And there are, you know, X number of Bitcoin, 6.25 Bitcoin released to the miner who found that little needle. 
and then uh, sent the put the transactions together in a block and sent it out to the network. So that's all it is. But why is it so important? It, it maintains decentralization. Um, you don't you don't have to have a certain amount of money, right? You just have to have some hashing power to have to basically help contribute to the security of the network. Um, and it's a lot easier to maintain decentralization of proof of work than proof of stake because it's yeah it's basically the amount of money that you are putting in to a proof of work operation is much lower in terms of like the influence you might get on the network versus a proof of stake system and it's inherently like decentralizing as opposed to centralizing the other piece of it is you have to make it easy to verify the transactions and that's the other piece of decentralization so we have something like 15,000 visible nodes on the Bitcoin network around the world, probably like 100,000 if you include those that are not broadcasting their presence to the, to the network. And it's super cheap to run one of those. And it's super easy. So I, can, I have my node over here. Every block comes in. I'm verifying it along with all the other nodes on the network. And you can't do that with Ethereum or other proof-of-stake systems. It's too expensive to verify a transaction. So again, it centralizes to the richer people. I can run a node for a hundred bucks and verify my own transaction. So you must have decentralization to get the benefits of this technology in terms of real world socioeconomic benefits. Proof of stakes is more of the same. It doesn't work. In, in my opinion, it comes down to trust. Yeah. And we can say that we trust Obama, but we can't trust the lobbyists and Jamie Dimon yes. influence on him and his administration. But we can trust a system like Bitcoin. Again, that's the importance of decentralization because no one entity has control over the other parties. Yeah. A, a, a critique that is often lobbed at Bitcoin is that they'll point to early adopters who have thousands of Bitcoin and say, you know, look how, many, look how much Bitcoin this person has and they, you know, it's, it's centralized into a few holders. And you, you try to reinstill the fact that it doesn't matter. That person has no more influence over Bitcoin than the person who has just a few Satoshis. You know, there's there's a difference between that system and then one when you've got uh, an approved stake where the person who's got uh, hundreds of thousands of Ethereum has way more control over the person than yes. who, who has a, a few ETH. Yep. And in our opinion, again, that is a replication of the exact system that we espouse to be unfair and unjust. And so the the claims that it is more friendly, that they're somehow better in a normative sense, I think is just flat out false and a a, a PR and marketing move um, that's that's paid for. And again, if, if, if your money needs a PR team, I question whether or not it's going to be a fair and, and just system to uh, for all. Yeah. It's just more of the same. It's just a different parties. It, it gives, it gives private companies a chance to get on the, the money making money, creating gravy train. And so I think, you know, VCs and banking institutions or whoever, like private companies, I mean, Facebook wanted to do it, you know? So this is like a tech that I think they look at and they're like, Oh, well we could, this is like us. We could do the fed. We could be the fed. You know, we just have to get everybody to use our money instead. Right. And and that's what they're looking at. It's like, yeah, it's technology that can be used to create a money, a digital money. Um, 
but it's not doesn't mean that it's you got to look at the properties and the money. And that's what we're talking about. Bitcoin has properties that no other money has had except for gold and well, you know, metals, any kind of naturally limited um, substance was a better money than fiat because there's this, this natural inflation rate that you know humans couldn't change, right? Um, their alchemy doesn't work. So gold, you know, there's, we've had, let's see, like four, four Olympic pools, uh, full of gold have been mined in like the last couple thousand years. And most of it still exists on the, like on the earth. It doesn't tarnish and et cetera, et cetera. So it was really good money, 2% a year inflation. Naturally, that's what we could get out of the ground. Um, and it stayed at 2% because it got harder and harder and harder and harder to get it. No matter how, you know, we had to keep building better tech to keep at that same, rate of finding new gold to get out of the ground every year. It's amazing. It's still that way. Um, but that's Bitcoin has those properties and improved, like perfected them in code and also doesn't have nearly the environmental impact that gold mining has, for instance. Um, and it's actually like a lot cleaner than almost every other industrial industry, uh, industry in the world. It's, um, uses, I mean, there's many, there's been many studies, but it's like 30 to 60% of the network is, is clean energy. Um, and that's important for, for progressives. I know they're all, it's also capturing carbon, uh, and stranded energy sites and, uh, flared gases that are just being wasted and vented with methane into the atmosphere. Those can be capped and turned into Bitcoin and security for the network. So it's amazing. There was this, there's a story about, uh, well, there's a couple stories, one in El Salvador where they're funding, uh, geothermal, uh, plant expansion uh, with with Bitcoin mining. So they're slowly expanding, and as they turn on new energy generation from the from the volcano, from the heat from the volcano, they're just instantly starting to mine. And then that money will help fund the build out of the full project, which is going to take like a decade. The same thing is is happening in Western Africa. I mean, it's it might happen in Western Africa where there's a um, hydro dam project that is pretty far away from where the energy demand is right now, but is projected to be necessary for energy demand in this, in this urban center in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. So they're built when you're building energy generation like that, you've got to overbuild, you know, and think about decades into the future because this infrastructure is going to be there for a long time. And so that they're overbuilding, they're not going to have demand for it for a lot of that energy for decades, next 10, 20 years. So they're going to mine Bitcoin. And, and the money they make will help fund the project, you know, and have generating income and generating revenue right away. So that's, that's an in, incentive or an, it enables the construction of a big project like that. That's not going to pay off for decades and a country might not have access to the funds to do that. So it's fascinating to me. And I think the coupling of, of energy and the demand for security for a decentralized money is going to do incredible things for both energy production and the quality of our money. So I think proof of work is genius and it's, it is unintuitive, but it's very much aligned with progressive values. So you've had the opportunity to talk to hundreds, thousands of people uh, who are proponents of Bitcoin over the years. And you've talked to people who go the spectrum from left to right. I'm fascinated with thinking about the future and how our political identities change over time. Clearly, there has been 
uh, changes in, in identities um, in the past century, even in, in America. Um, and so to assume that progressives, conservatives, you know, remain as such is, is kind of silly in my opinion. And I think Bitcoin will be a big uh, force for how those evolve. Have you put much thought toward this question and how Bitcoin might change how we view the world going forward and whether or not these these identities, so to speak, uh, carry with us? Or do we do we shed kind of these old models of looking at the world and now uh, Bitcoin points us in this in this different direction? Yeah, I have. And I, I think it's really difficult to project because let me answer this two ways. One, we can think about things in kind of like a vacuum where technology stays roughly the same as it is right now. And like how would Bitcoin might might change the world um, in our society. But then there's this, you know, exponentially advancing technology, this march of artificial intelligence and, you know, biotech, um, nanotech, all of these cutting edge technologies that we've been kind of speculating about for decades and decades are coming to fruition in really fast nuclear fusion is like actually making really promising progress. Um, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, we're building giant spaceships now, private spaceship companies. So the future is like here and that whole gradually then suddenly the X squared curve, like our brains just don't really grok it naturally. You know, you have to really, really force yourself to try to con conceive of like, you know, X to the 10th or beyond is like really big numbers. And it's hard for us to understand. Like the um, cryptographic hash algorithm in Bitcoin mm -hmm. has more answers to any particular problem than there are atoms in the universe, right? So it's just like hard to understand that. I can't even grasp that number. So let me put all of that stuff, and I'll comment on that in a second, but let's just think like, okay, if things were sort of the way they are now, how could this better money change the world? I think that simple change of being able to actually save reliably and, and store your wealth and generate wealth with with the money, which is what is supposed to happen. Like that's the way gold worked. You, it was both transactional and it was, you know, gen, wealth generating and wealth preserving at the same time. Our money now is just transactional, and it's actually ste wealth stealing. <laughs> so um, that massive change allows the you know ninety five percent of us that don't have access beyond like maybe a four hundred one k to the stock market or other well-generating assets, then that, that changes everything. And then I'm going to, instead of like, I've got to get rid of this money or I've got to go get a payday loan and pay those guys 30% or something like that, right? Because I'm just living paycheck to paycheck and I can't save anything. Uh, then you get a chance to start working your way out, you know, and next generation, like this was the American dream, right? It was your next generation is going to be better, better off than you and so on. You pay it forward. The millennials were the first generation for a long time in America where they were worse off than their parents. That is not a coincidence. So I think that little change will, will drive a much fairer economy. I think we'll all feel more together again, like we'll feel more a part of the same system that, that is kind of uplifting us in general together, as opposed to, you know, pulling people down and lifting people up. So I think it'll feel less like, there's big, big, big fucking winners and like a bunch of bad losers, poor losers. It'll be more like evenly distributed. Middle class will rebuild. I think the wealth income or wealth, this, uh, wealth inequality will, will definitely come back down. 
um, maybe more to where we were in like the 50s or 60s or something like that. And I think it'll just make it uh, make the world a nicer place to live, to be quite honest. So I think it'll be good in general. Um, and then if we look forward to what's actually happening now with all the tech and stuff, I have like, it's impossible to predict now because there is this singularity coming where, you know, when is like you've seen Mid Journey, right? And these other artists, like uh, art, art AIs, absolutely incredible. So you start to feel like you're on the verge of some, if it hasn't happened already, you know, birth of conscious AI. What, you know, what happens then? Um, what happens when we, you know, are, we reach escape velocity on life, ex life extension? So you're, we're literally adding a year onto the expected life of a human every year. And then it's a year and a month and a year and two months. And so it just escapes until, you know, maybe you can live forever. Um, maybe you can clone your body and replace it and, you know, map, remap your brain onto a new, on a cloned body with nanotechnology. All of this stuff is like happening uh, and it's accelerating and it's all self-reinforcing. So I think like Jeff Booth talks, talks about this in his book, The Price of Tomorrow. It's necessary to have a deflationary money in a world of abundance and they just won't go together. Uh, so Bitcoin is like exponential technology is going to force us into using Bitcoin essentially is what he's, is what he's saying. Like they're fundamentally at odds with one another. It's everything is moving to zero to, to being free. Like it's called, there's another book called the zero marginal cost society. I can't remember the, the author's name, but the idea is, and then abundance, the future is better than you think by Peter Diamandis is another one I read. Um, we're heading to a world where, okay. So ultimately if you have, a nanotech nanotechnology that can like assemble things from from molecules from individual molecules and elements it's like the star trek repl replicator so instead of like in addition to water and internet and electricity you'll just pipe in like elements you know from the periodic table and your you know your replicator will just like take the recipe and knit together all these atoms and create whatever you want and then all you're paying for is literally the cost of the basic elements which are abundant right and so then everybody has abundance and that's could be something that happens by the end of the century. Um, so it's, it's a massively changing world that we're moving into. Bitcoin's going to, going to be a major force for, for good, but there's also a lot of technology out there that can be a major force for good and bad. It's going to be an absolutely, uh, I, yeah, we're not, humans are not made for this. Uh, we are, we're living in this very fascinating moment where it's like the elbow of that asymptotic growth. And we've gone slowly like this from, you know, 10,000 years ago at the advent of agriculture to this part where we're just like spiking way off the charts with artificial intelligence and whatever, you know? So it's, it's a crazy time to be a human, um, but it will mean that we need progressives uh, to advocate that much harder for our values and th so they're not lost and they're embedded into this like new, much more technical, much more technological world that we're in the midst of and continuing to barrel forward. So, well, we're coming to the top of the hour here. So I'll ask you my final question. Yeah. And that's what gives you hope. Bitcoin definitely gives me hope. I was quite pessimistic about a lot of things and Bitcoin changed that for me in a lot of ways our government being hopelessly broken, like not hopelessly, but I was getting more and more uh, hopeless about being able to fix our government. 
I was really pretty hopeless about privacy. And I also um, was bored. <laughs> Just and, and Bitcoin really lit this sort of flame of, of, um, you know, of curiosity again for me. Uh, and it's still burning extremely hot right now. And this is sort of the cause of my of the rest of my career. And so that's given me a lot of hope uh, just person, on a personal level. And then I think just uh, another thing that Bitcoin's given me is a lot of new good friends. And so I think the network that I'm building uh, of, of kind of these early Bitcoin adopters uh, gives me hope because in the future, I think that network will be incredibly useful for a lot of things, getting a lot of different things done and including just being happy and having uh, people in my family's life that are, I think, are um, uplifting and edifying people. So the people in this space are really amazing. I've been blessed to meet so many amazing people. And, you know, our, our mutual friend, Brandon Quidham, is, is uh, one of my absolute favorites. Uh, he's become like a brother to me over the last few years at Swan. And so, yeah, uh, Bitcoiners give me hope. Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. I love it. Bitcoin has been your call to action that I think for many of us has been absent for for years. Yeah. Yep. Well, wonderful. Tell the listeners where they can find you in Swan. Yeah, I am uh, at Citizen Bitcoin on Twitter. And uh, I am the co-founder and head of marketing at Swan Bitcoin, swanbitcoin.com. And uh, we're also throwing a big party out in LA, November 10th and 11th called Pacific Bitcoin pacificbitcoin.com if you want to come and hang out with a bunch of hope-filled Bitcoiners. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I appreciate it. I hope uh, Thanksgiving with your brother goes well. Send him some of my episodes <laughs> in the meantime. I will. I will. I'm going to try to get him to listen to this episode. Fantastic. And see what he thinks. You can have him on after, after me. <laughs> yeah, we could have a little take. panel. <laughs> That'd be funny. <laughs> Thank All you so right. much, Brady. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to The Progressive Bitcoiner. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. And don't forget, we have a website, theprogressivebitcoiner.com, where we have a lot of great content on Bitcoin and progressive issues. Thanks again for tuning in.